Welcome to another edition of the Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight. We are the Retro Talk Network where we talk about anything having to do with nostalgia, radio, television, movies. If you plugged it in, turned it on, listened to it, or watched it, we talk about it here. I'm Smitty. I'm Mike. And I'm Ian. And we're very glad that you're with us on another Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight. We hope that you will have as much fun listening to it as we did putting it together. Before we get started, we'd like to give you our website and our email so you can get a hold of us. Mike, do we have that for our friends? Oh, it just so happens we do, Smitty. It's galaxymoonbeamnightsight.com. Although you're listening to the podcast, you can get to our regular website with galaxymoonbeamnightsight.com. You can also send us some email. We love email. We're starting to get more and more of it as these shows evolve. Our email address is galaxymoonbeamnightsight at gmail.com, galaxymoonbeamnightsight at gmail.com. Back to you. Very good, Mike. Thank you. And we hope our friends will jot us a little note or send us a picture. We'd love to hear from you. Well, as you've been hearing, Ian Rose writes and voices essays about the past, particularly to the 1950s. Turning it around, what were the 1950s saying about the future? Predictions, predictions. You know, one of the predictions that really missed the mark was the moon landing. You remember the movie Destination Moon from 1950? It never specifically said where in the future this story was taking place. But I heard a recorded radio broadcast from the late 1940s that said that we wouldn't go to the moon until the turn of the century. We got there 31 years ahead of schedule. Here's another 1950s prediction seen in major magazines like Mechanics Illustrated. Robots would be doing mundane work such as household chores in a matter of years. I'm still waiting for Robbie to come to my home. One more prediction. I saw this in a magazine from 1950. It offered pictures of how we would dress at the turn of the century, the year 2000. There were images of men and women dressed in pullover clothes, tight-fitting tops and bottoms like dancers' clothes. The point was that styles would be more casual. Today's clothes have not reached that stage overall, but yes, they are more casual. Here's the tally. One out of three predictions, they got one partially right. Like the old saying goes, predictions are hard to make, particularly when they deal with the future. Hmm. I think I hear Robbie knocking. I'm Ian Rose. Hey, Ian, do you remember Disneyland? I believe it was in the 60s. General Electric had a a, a carousel. It was called a, a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow, and it showed, it depicted the family of the 21st century. Do you remember that skit? I'm trying to think specifically. What do you remember about it? I remember the jingle, Oh, there's a great big beautiful tomorrow. And you would have the turn of the century, 1900, this family dressed in period attire with the uh, the appliances of the day. I believe there was a vacuum cleaner that mom had to pump by hand, but it and then they got electric lights and everyone was thrilled. Then they the carousel closed, the curtain came closed, then you waited a minute or two and then the, the curtain opened and then we were in the nineteen twenties with the phonographs. And all the way up to I guess nineteen sixty they had they had talked about uh lighting and freeway systems and whatnot it just came to me i wonder what that skit would be like talking about the 22nd century 
Mm. All the things we imagined that may or may not ever come true, a lot of them as far as technology came true. That's right. And I'm kind of wondering whether it would have been more interesting in that time period to talk about the future than it would be about talking about the future today. Well, because so much of, uh, so much of it's become a reality. The thing is, the inventions of the past for many people didn't seem possible back then. Today, maybe we're expecting too much out of the future. It could be. Or maybe we've just become chided over the years. Technology really hasn't lived up to its expectations. Could we say that? Well, maybe. I remember as a kid growing up in, in, going, in grammar school in the early 60s, there was talk of, of putting a man on the moon, and that, that was so sci-fi. Now they're talking about putting people on Mars, and I think the response most Americans have is, well, how are we ever going to afford that? Because mm -hmm. it's already an assumption that we could do it if we wanted to. We put a guy on the moon, we've circled the globe however many thousands of times with astronauts and cosmonauts. So I don't think there's doubt as to whether or not something could be done in the future. I think what's on everyone's minds nowadays is, well, how much would this cost to get there? So it's not so much really about thinking about what we can achieve, it's what will it cost? What will this gain us? What more of a practical, what's this good for? Well, we might be a little fickle, too, as far as technology, as far as what to expect in the future. Maybe we would sit back and, and the predictions of things in the future would just bore us to tears because we've seen just about everything else. You mean we are getting jaded we might be. Which means we might retreat back to the past. That could be. It's possible that some of us may be heading backwards. I think I've been heading backwards for many years. Well, has anybody been to the movies lately? We're definitely oh. going retro on what's oh. going on oh, the big boy. screen. Oh, boy. Well, anyway, this will be a good topic for maybe our friends to write in and share their opinion with us. So we thank you again for that essay. And speaking of emails, we've been having quite a few emails, a number of them that have come in, about people talking about the good old days. Some people actually were functioning as, uh, well, what can we call them, stringers back in the early days when they were going out shooting pictures and trying to submit them into newspapers and maybe doing some tape recording and trying to put that on a, on a radio station. And it's also possible for somebody to be a citizen journalist today much easier than it was back in those days. Um, Mike, you go way back with this topic, and we thought maybe you would talk to us for a few minutes about your experiences and maybe kind of comparing it to what is out there today. What thoughts do you have on this topic? Well, you know, I've always been a, a news buff and in 1969 and 70 and 71. When I was in high school, I paid a lot of my gas money and, and money for my little car as a result of uh, selling still photos to newspapers and selling footage to Los Angeles television news stations. And those, in that, that time it was KHJ Channel 9, KTTV Channel 11, KCOP, a lot of independents, and they would buy footage. And I remember uh, a having a Bolex H16 wind-up 16-millimeter movie camera with video news film loaded in it, and we only had 100 feet of film. Now, I had a friend of mine who worked at a car dealership, and he was able to tune my AM radio in my little Chevy, my Chevelle, to pick up police calls. So as long as I was in the car, I could hear police calls from Los Angeles Police Department, and I would go to the scenes of these crimes or, or horrendous traffic accidents, and I would shoot some footage and then race over to Hollywood, which was about, oh, 15 miles from where I was, and... Uh, take the footage to this 
film lab and get on the phone and call the different stations while the film was being processed. And that's how I made the money, the whole process from the time I shot an event all the way till the time the film was ready could be hours. And fast forward up to uh, 2010, I've got a little camera that I carry along with me. I think it ran 150 bucks. I got it for Christmas and it's called a flip camera, flip video. And I can go to a breaking news event, which actually I did on Friday on my way to Los Angeles. There was uh, quite a bad traffic accident on Interstate 15. And uh, traffic was stopped. We were gridlocked. And I got out of the car and took my little flip camera, went up, shot some scenes, got back in the car. And then a few minutes later, went to my brother-in-law's house, who has a computer. And within 30 minutes, I had this footage moved to some of the local TV stations, not to mention putting it up on YouTube. So I was probably one of the first citizen journalists, but my inspiration was from a guy by the name of Ouija. And he was a news cameraman, a freelance still photographer in New Jersey in the 1940s. And he processed film out of the trunk of his car. Uh, he had a police radio in his car and had a speed graphic, 4x5. He did not even have the ability to advance film. Each each film was a, it was a panel of film. And he would soup the film in the trunk of his car, race over to the newspapers, all by himself. That was work. And you look back to the dedication and the determination of the early citizen journalists like Ouija and even myself, and you see how easy it is nowadays to get breaking news moved to the uh, news agencies. You really appreciate technology because, like I say, I came from an era where we had 100 feet of video news film. It was 16 millimeter. It had to be exposed exactly right. There was no color correction. And you had 100 feet to tell the story. No audio. Today, I think maybe for two or $300, you could put yourself in business as a freelance reporter or camera person and make a pretty decent living there and there are sources everywhere now where they'll take your breaking news footage and it can be exposed around the world i'm curious to know one thing about all of this and i remember matt drudge brought this up uh, some time ago mm. because people complained that drudge was not a legitimate journalist you remember that yes he's just works on the internet what the hell does he know et yeah. cetera et cetera et cetera and they'd come to you or come to somebody who's a freelancer and say hey you're not a legitimate journalist. You're not working for this radio station or this newspaper or this syndication. Hmm. What gives you the right to go out there and do all this? And even with Drudge, you're right, Ian. A lot of people thought he was just an opportunist. Well, that's what a freelance journalist is. I was not able to get a police credential. You had to be a certified, bona fide member of the media to get a, a police pass or a fire line pass. So... I made I established a report a rapport with the police departments and the fire departments to where I was able to go in, sometimes even pass the uh, crime scene tape and snap a few photos, then get out of there. Uh, Drudge, I've always admired his model because he was a compiler. I don't think he probably before the judge the Drudge report ever wrote a story in his life, but he knew his audience. He knew what people wanted to read about. He knew the trends. He could anticipate what was going to be good news, and he was able to put together all of the different news links or news sources in that time and create, an, uh, create a page, a website page, where somebody could go to one page and get all the news that they would possibly be interested in from everywhere in the world all on one page. 
And I think that was innovative. And there's a lot of innovation in citizen journalism that's still to come. There seems to be a lot of interest in it, too. Is that right? A lot of interest, a lot of people. A few years ago, YouTube was popular for uh, fraternity brothers doing strange stunts and, and dog tricks and people doing spills in their swimming pools. Well, YouTube has evolved into a major information medium. Uh, large corporations are using YouTube to present their products and their information and their services. But aspiring filmmakers and aspiring reporters, aspiring uh, TV producers, news people like myself back in the 70s are going to YouTube to show show people what they've got. And I think YouTube and the interest in breaking news, the interest in citizen journalism, is really going to create a lot of new professionals in the next few coming years because somebody, as I say, with two or three hundred dollars and who can get the sixth sense of being at the right place at the right time or they see a police helicopter with the spotlight over in some section of their town, they can get over there and be the first one in there. Content is king. Content always has been. We've talked in previous episodes about content, 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 even in the 1940s and 50s. The producers with the content were the ones who got the slots on TV. And those who can provide the content, even from a little pocket camera, uh, they've they've got themselves a pretty good little part-time business. I think that the news stations with cutbacks and whatnot, they can't afford to put press photographers out or camera people. And I think it's going to be, uh, I think news communication is going to be make it or break it as a result of what citizens there and how fast they can articulate, uh, shoot some breaking news, and then get it to a news agency. So being a citizen journalist today, Mike, is much simpler because of the increased technology than it was back during Ouija's time, certainly, and certainly even during your time as a stringer. Yeah, and, and I looked at it, it in high school. It was, a, you know, it was a tank of gas for me. It wasn't a lot of money. I think if when I was able to take a still shot, and we used 35-millimeter black-and-white Tri-X film, I'd get $5 for every photograph that was purchased by a newspaper or by United Press International. $5 was pretty good in 1970s. A few mm-hmm. gallons of gas, but it was sure. the recognition. I had it in my blood. I loved to get there first and uh, snap a picture and have it have it across the country and every newspaper the next day really felt good. But with the technology and the fact that somebody can take one of these little flip videos and maybe it's an apartment house fire or breaking news, a, a VIP in the news, or just be there when something's happening... Within 20, 30 minutes, this could be out around the world because of the Internet, because digital media, and because how fast somebody could take take the footage and get it up on YouTube or whatnot. And on a subsequent show, we're going to talk a little more about YouTube and that phenomenon and how all that ties in with the citizen journalist uh, of today. Yes. Thanks, Mike. That was very enlightening and very interesting, and thanks for sharing your experiences from you the past. You got it. Thank you. Well, we're going to have a little retro-mercial now. As you're well aware, we like to play these for you on every show and just a little taste of the past, so we're going to have that for you right now. We hope that you enjoy this. We'll be right back. When you're feeling tense and irritable and you're bothered by irregularity... Take X-Lax. X-Lax helps you toward your normal regularity, gently, overnight. When you feel listless and dragged out and you're bothered by irregularity... Take X-Lax. X-Lax helps you toward your normal regularity, gently, overnight. Whenever you need a laxative... Take X-Lax at bedtime. 
Exlax won't disturb sleep. And next morning, you'll be well on the way toward your normal regularity, without upset, without discomfort. And thanks to its gentle effectiveness, Exlax is almost never needed again the next night. Whenever you need a laxative. Take pleasant-tasting, chocolated Exlax. The laxative that helps you toward your normal regularity, gently, overnight. Whenever anyone in your family needs a laxative. You can rely on Exlax, America's largest selling laxative. Exlax helps you toward your normal regularity. How many times did he say normal regularity? You know, uh, on the road to normal regularity. You know, that commercial is on the road to becoming, uh, uh, getting a place in my book of oxymorons. Normal regularity. Now, how would you twist that? Abnormal regularity or normal irregularity? <laughs> and for a peaceful night's sleep. Oh, I hope it's peaceful. <laughs> It may be peaceful, and maybe you don't want it so peaceful, <laughs> oh, especially boy. in the middle of the night. We should ask our resident laureate, Ian, what he thinks about that, kind of an oxymoron. Well, it sounds redundant to mention it twice. Either it's regularity is supposedly normal, in which case you don't need both words, right? <laughs> of course, then again, maybe you need both to emphasize what the process of the is going on here. Well, how about pleasant, ch- pleasant-tasting chocolatey-flavored? Mm. Chocolatey-flavored. Now... Every time you had a nice, thick chocolate <laughs> shake, would you think of X-Lax? No. Or every time you <laughs> took an X-Lax, would you think of a nice, thick, chocolatey shake? Now, I get a little message confusion there. Maybe oh. I should go lay down. Oh. <laughs> but don't take any X-Lax. No, and definitely, a pleasant night's sleep. And yes, and definitely you don't want to take X-Lax and a sleeping pill on the same night. Good idea. Yes. Wow, sweet dreams. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> In the chocolatey flavor. In the chocolatey flavor. The Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight. We are back with you again. We hope that you're having a kick out of listening to it as we are putting it together for you. I'm Smitty. I'm Mike. And I'm Ian. And don't forget our show talks about anything that plugged in, communicated, radio, TV, phonograph, Morse code, shortwave, anything that involved the golden years of communication between people. We'd like to hear from you if you would like to drop us an email, you can do that. Our email address is galaxymoonbeamnightsite, that's N-I-G-H-T-S-I-T-E, at gmail.com. The website is galaxymoonbeamnightsite.com. And again, don't forget, it's N-I-G-H-T-S-I-T-E. Drop us a note or a picture if you have that you'd like to share with us. We'd love to hear from you. Now, Ian Rose is going to be back with us now, and he's going to talk about the Red Scare of the 1950s and a lot of different parallels on that topic. Ian, take it away. Are you now, or have you ever been, a member of the Communist Party? Better dead than red. And then there was that disparaging term known as a pinko. These are some of the phrases and words you remember from the 1950s. I think the Red Scare reached its crescendo in the 1950s. But before we get there, can I go backwards a little bit? Going back into history, going back, there's always been this revulsion or this scare or this fear of communism or Bolshevism or Bolsheviks. And it, Believe it or not, folks, that after the First World War, American troops and British troops were sent to the Soviet Union with the intention of knocking down the uh, revolution which had happened in 1917. Mm -hmm. Just to refresh, you know, Russia got out of the First World War, had the revolution, and there was... Now, if you remember those days, uh, people were more religious years ago. Communism is a godless uh, philosophy. 
so people would there'd be a greater dislike in the past. We had this, so to give you a little background on what was happening, uh, the troops that were sent there, the British and American troops that went to the Soviet Union left, and I don't think there was any ever major confrontation. There might have been some uh, sh- small shootouts. Anyway, if we start flashing forward, you know, we had to ally ourselves with the Russians, the Soviet Union during the Second World War, out of necessity. So all of a sudden now, this philosophy <laughs> we found so repulsive, we had to embrace and that, that dastardly communist known as Joseph Stalin became Uncle Joe during the war. He was our friend. And that's how that happened. So we joined forces with him because, you see, in, in 1941, Germany invaded the Soviet Union. We got in later that year. We became allies with the Russians, the lesser of two evils. Of course, things changed immediately when the war ended, and we went back to the, the old ways. Along comes the 1950s, and by 1953... The Russians had the bomb. So we had that to deal with. Plus, we were getting in the newspapers articles that I actually read on the microfilm talking about Russia's first strike capability against the United States. On the first strike, they could kill 80 million Americans, knocking out half of the population in a matter of minutes. No wonder there was paranoia in this country. We had the HUAC, the uh, House on american Activities, seeking out communists wherever they could find them. Now, the question is, what was the the big deal in regards to the motivation? And I think it was, we didn't want to make the same mistake twice. We saw the rise of Nazi Germany, and everybody stood by, and the rise of the Empire of Japan. And if we, if we acted sooner, we could have nipped both of those in the butt, and we didn't do it. So now was our chance to make up for past errors. I think that's the reason why... I don't agree with the HUAC meetings. I think they became witch hunts. As somebody once said, you know, there were no winners after all of this was over. And I think they started to fade, and you'd be pretty good at this, Gil. They started to fade around, what, 54, 55, and, of course, the head of them, uh, Senator McCarthy, was dead in 57. Yeah, I think that McCarthy helped to bring that down because he, as you said, Ian, it, it was starting out to be a witch hunt. And I think the American public... Uh, realized that, and they decided to turn against from this man, and so did the uh, the other senators. As you recall, they, they censored him. That's right, and we had situations where newspapers went against him, and of course, Edward R. Murrow in his famous exactly, broadcast. Exactly, exactly, uh, on the television program, See It Now, yes. that he did. Ian, can we say that from studying all this, we were very afraid of appeasement. We didn't want to go down that road again. It sounds that way, doesn't it? Because it does, we yeah. had all that in the late uh, 30s, along with Neville Chamberlain appeasing Hitler. And, you know, he was marching through uh, Europe every which way, and nobody could seem to stop him there for a while until, of course, he went up against the Soviet bear, which changed the the course of history of the war. Exactly. And as far as this Red Scare goes, how did that affect American media, television, movies? What was the impact of the Red Scare? Well, it's funny because we had shows like I Was a Communist for the FBI. I think that was a radio drama. Mm -hmm. Or I Led Three Lives, where, you know, he was a... He was a normal. Uh, he was a normal person, and he was working for the <laughs> communists. And then he was also working for the FBI. So that was Richard Carlson's show. You remember that? I do. Yes. I, I, well, I don't remember it specifically, but I've heard recordings of it. Let's yeah. Put it that way. <laughs> you had movies. You know that we dug up a website. You mm-hmm. did some of the movies that came out of that time. There's one of them particularly, "The World, the Flesh, and the Devil" of 1958. This looked like to be the aftermath of a of a, a nuclear holocaust mm-hmm, mm-hmm. those kind of things kept coming back 
mm-hmm. uh, even after the 50s. Mm-hmm. Of one sort. There was a movie with Ray Milland in 61. The uh, title escapes me. Panic the, in the Year Zero. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1983, there was Special Bulletin. You remember that? I when, remember that. When a bomb blew up in uh, Charleston, Charleston Harbor. I remember that. So we continue to bring these themes back again and again. Let's not forget uh, the um, bomb shelters. Yes, uh, we were talking about that earlier. In fact, actually, before we began doing this this show, Mike, uh, you remember the bomb shelters from the 50s, and some of them are still in existence. Yeah, I grew up in Los Angeles, and we had a couple of neighbors who dug those out of their backyards. And... Uh, they brought in supplies, and uh, they were ready. Uh, they were ready for the uh, worst-case scenario. And I know one of those was actually exhumed and put down at one of the museums in Los Angeles as an example of, of the Red Scare during the 60s. How interesting, because... There's also one in the Smithsonian. In the Smithsonian, yeah. We were talking about that earlier, where they actually uh, dug one up out of the ground, they, and they cut one side of it out, and... They have it on display so you can actually see what a bomb shelter. The other thing that we were talking about is it's kind of a morose subject, I think, but assuming you went down into your bomb shelter, you survived the initial uh, nuclear exchange, and it, two, three weeks later when you came up, what would you come up to? What would there be? I mean, it really would it really be worth surviving something like that? Well, Ian, wasn't there a number of spinoff, or not spinoff, but takeoff uh, TV shows? Twilight Zone, for one, had a... Very, very well-watched, award-winning episode on a, uh, I think it was a neighborhood, a, a group of neighbors who went against a guy who had a bomb shelter. Right. And there were little shows and little what-ifs, and it was all sci-fi, but what were some of those shows, as I recall? Well, you mentioned The Twilight Zone. What about Burgess Meredith and Time Enough at Last? Right. Where he survives a bomb blast because he's in the vault of a bank. And he comes out and he's the last man on earth and contemplates suicide. You remember that? I remember that one very well. Twilight Zone, I guess, seemed to really exemplify the mood of the times. And they did by these, some of these shows. As Mike was saying, it was sci-fi. But uh, it certainly was reflecting probably a lot of thought. Well, and then as movies were produced as a result of the the nuclear scare, uh, the monster movies where you had a once beautiful woman, beautiful, gorgeous lady, and uh, the doctor had injected her, I, I forgot what it was called, maybe it was called The Unearthly, I think the name of the movie, where he injected her with radioactive isotopes, and at the next scene you've got this horrible, scarred monster that was mm. once this beautiful gal. And, of course, the some of the sci-fi movies, Them, and uh, what was that? Was it Them, where the grasshoppers had gotten a zap of radioactive material and were suddenly bigger than most large sedans well actually there's a combination of these bug movies and for various reasons uh some of them were grown either by uh nuclear or other means actually the grasshoppers were uh the beginning of the end them were the ants in the sewers of los angeles which uh, also starred uh, james arnes who had been the thing so he Correct. was doing double duty you he see he'd that. already had what about the guy the Col- was it the amazing colossal man yeah, the guy that he, he stomped on Las Vegas, wasn't it? He went through and he had an eye, his eyeball had melted. It looked like a piece of mozzarella <laughs> from a pizza. A pizza and uh, he had, that was around that time, wasn't it? The late fifties, yes. And Ian, wasn't it the fifty? The attack of the fifty-foot woman. Mm, now that one sequel. I liked. I'm sure you did. <laughs> and I always wondered what if those two had gotten together. You know, that's a question that uh, bears uh, some contemplation. Had a backyard full of mutants. You know, I have a neighbor who I think has a backyard full of mutants anyway. I don't know if the <laughs> kids were dosed with isotopes, but uh, there was uh, 
the amazing colossal man and the, 50, the attack of the 50-foot woman and then the large locusts and the large uh, iguanas and the ants. Yeah, and the, all tar- around and the, the same and a large tarantula and a large Gila monster. And we had plenty of large to deal with. I've always referred to those movies as these, them, and those. <laughs> these, them, and those. Wow. Actually, for our New York listeners, it would be these, dems, and those. That's right. Wow. <laughs> that spawned a whole other genre there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it certainly did about uh, monsters of one sort or another, about growing because of the... Uh, uh, nuclear contamination of one sort or another. Actually, it was a radioactive isotope that we, they used to kill one of those monsters. That's how they killed the beast from 20,000 Fathoms, if anybody's keeping track of all of this. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So, and, it, and that was Lee Van Cleef, by the way, for all you Spaghetti Western fans. Well, let's see. And that was the, when did the age of the nuclear threat when did it end? Did it ever end? I don't think so. I don't think it's okay. ever ended. I think it's subsided. Mm. Well, we have Iran in the news now, and they're putting together a... Yeah, it, it, it's just, it's, it's like, here we go again, and it was the gist of our shows. Almost every episode, we talk about full circle. So here we come in with another scare, maybe, what, 50 years later. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. It just always seems that we get past a certain... Uh, a certain scare and something else comes around. And like you were saying, Mike, it almost seems like it's a, a full circle thing. But the guy in it, the little guy in Iran that's running the show, he just, he doesn't give me that, that Joe Stalin feeling at all. Maybe it's the mustache. Or I the, thought they both had mustaches. Yeah, they did. But, uh, <laughs> well, but Joe Stalin just had a mustache. This little, little bird in, uh, Iran, uh, just has a, I guess a little goatee and a mustache and whatever he, but he just seems like a little twerp. Yeah, he seems like a little trip, and I bet he's never marched through Berlin with a division of tanks either. No, I don't think so. Yeah. Did he ever uh, dance with George Patton? Good question. Good okay. question. We should research that. Next on Jeopardy. Yes, yes we, should, we should research that. Well, thank you very much, Ian. That was very informative. And if you have any recollections of the Red Scare when you were growing up and you would like to share anything with us, by all means, drop us an email. Or look us up on our website, and we'll be glad to air your story on our show. Yeah, and if you start to lose a lot of body hair, starts to turn gray and drop out, and you find your eyes not focusing, and perhaps uh, through electromagnetic reversal, <laughs> your car won't start. <laughs> Maybe you've got your own red scare, and we'd love to hear about it. Email yes, us. Yes, exactly. And you may even win a prize, and that prize will be we'll mention your name on our program. Yes, and you'll never be able to use it because uh, you'll probably be dead. <laughs> or, well, if your, or if your eye begins to look like a piece of mozzarella cheese. Or, yeah, working at nights on some peak somewhere, uh, being a beacon for small aircraft. Exactly. Well... We better quit while we're ahead. We want to remind you before we leave you that we'd like to hear from you, so please drop us a note at our email address. It's galaxymoonbeamnightside at gmail.com. Galaxymoonbeamnightside at gmail.com. Our website is galaxymoonbeamnightside.com. And again, that's spelled N-I-G-H-T-S-I-T-E. Drop us a note, and we'd love to hear from you. That's going to pretty much end our show for this week. We want to thank you for joining us, and we remind you all of our shows are available on our website. They are downloadable as a podcast, and we look forward to having you join us again for our next show. So until next time, I'm Smitty. I'm Mike. And I'm Ian. And we'll see you next time, folks. Take care. (laughs) 